Exodus 20, beginning at verse 8. Once again, dear friends, this is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Would you pray with me once again, friends? Our Father, before us is your holy and inerrant word. Grant us once again your Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination. As we read your law, we We see our failure, we see our sin, we see our need. But show us as we cling to Christ, he who has obeyed this law, that all the grace we need to begin to live in new obedience, all that grace is available to us in Christ. And give us, we pray, renewed resolve to live for your glory as your people. And all for Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Remember the Sabbath day... And keep it holy. Today we're thinking about the fourth commandment. And the fourth commandment is, I suspect, probably the most misunderstood or disregarded or most objected to of the Ten Commandments these days. Now maybe that distinction belongs to the second commandment, but certainly the fourth and the second commandment together are the most commonly set aside, if you will, of the Ten Commandments. Now, of course, we don't expect anything less from a secular culture or a hostile world that is at enmity with God, but even in the church, even in the Reformed church in some cases, there is a great deal of misunderstanding among God's people, even among her elders and ministers. And so I hope in some small way, in our little corner of the Lord's vineyard, we can work to help rectify that. I say that because nine times out of ten, we approach the issue of the Christian Sabbath at the front end with, well, What am I not allowed to do? Or what am I allowed to get away with? Now, maybe that's not your attitude, and praise God if that's the case. But at least in my limited life experience, that has been the prevailing attitude among many Christians when we have discussions surrounding the fourth commandment. And I believe that when we come at it with that kind of attitude, we are dooming ourselves right out of the gate. If we come at it with that attitude, we are coming at it all wrong. We must begin with an entirely different approach if we would understand this commandment rightly. Because, fundamentally, the Sabbath, the Lord's day, is a blessing. It is a blessing and not a burden. One man put it like this. The Sabbath makes the point in a very dramatic and practical way that all time, every moment belongs to God. It says, God is in charge and we are not. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of my life. I am not my own. I have been bought at a price. And the Sabbath commandment is a way to express that fundamental commitment. When we set apart the Lord's day for rest and for worship, we are saying, 
God is in charge, and he gets to order my days. Close quote. Notice how when we read the scripture from Exodus 20, the command covers all people, even down to the livestock and the foreigners, the sojourners who are within our gates. We'll touch on that briefly in a few moments. And we might also notice that in verse 11, the fundamental basis of the command is the way that it relates to the creation week. And so, somewhat borrowing from similar outlines that I've seen when teaching on this command, but also in light of the the broad outline of the Bible, the broad contour of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, let's think of this command, this fourth commandment, under three points. First, the Sabbath ordained in creation. Secondly, the Sabbath frustrated by the fall. And then thirdly, the Sabbath redeemed and transformed in Christ. So first of all, let's think about the Sabbath ordained in creation. Fundamentally, we must remember that the Sabbath was not something dropped in as part of the Mosaic administration of the covenant. It was not something restricted to merely the Old Testament economy or that it was some post-fall reality, a concession, a mercy that God granted as a result of the ruinous effects of sin. No, pre-fall, pre-sin, from the dawn of time, from the dawn of creation, worked into the very fabric of the cosmos, God ordained the Sabbath and he blessed it. At the end of Genesis chapter 1, God makes man in his image, male and female, he created them, and then immediately Adam was given work to do. Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam was given work to do. And then, first three verses of Genesis 2, thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Perhaps one of the most, or at least one of those important ideas that often gets lost in these Sabbath discussions is that the fourth commandment is something that governs not just one day of the week, but actually all of the week. It establishes, you see, this pattern of work and rest that is embedded in the very fabric of creation. Six days of labor, one day of rest. It's about ordering our lives according to the God who made us. It's about patterning our ways after his ways. That's why we say it's more than just about instructions for one day. Really, it's instructions about how to govern, how to orient all seven days. Here, God is saying, Here's what you must do for those six days, and here's what you must do for that seventh day. Many scholars will note that the verbs used in Adam's instructions in Genesis 2, verse 15, they can be translated, Adam was given to tend the earth and guard it, or to dress it and to keep it, from the old King James Version. That's the same language that gets invoked later with the Levitical priests. Eden is a kind of garden temple with Adam as a kind of priest. And the work he was given was sacred work. Yes, he wasn't a priest in the strict Levitical sense, and so it stands to reason that the dominion labor, the work of his hands, the work of our human hands, likewise by extension, is a kind of sacred work. Man, male and female, made in the image of God, employed 
and instructed to do sacred labor under the blessing and under the tutelage of God Almighty. Work, labor, our work, inherent, you see, with dignity and honor as we are image bearers of Almighty God and all things are done and meant to give Him and bring Him glory. Work, not an evil burden to be endured, but in unspoiled paradise at creation. Work is actually a sacred trust, a stewardship given to Adam and Eve, meant to glorify their creator. Now, sin enters the equation, as we'll see in a moment, and spoils everything. But the principle, this principle, this rhythm, if you like, of work and rest still abides. That is why you'll often hear reference to what are called the three creation ordinances, these mandates, these patterns that apply to all people everywhere and which are still in play, regardless of the reality of the fall, regardless of the reality of sin. What are those three creation ordinances? Work, or labor, marriage, and Sabbath. Work, marriage, and Sabbath. These three were instituted in Eden, unspoiled Eden, and they still abide. And here, in the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath principle is recognized and enshrined just as much as laws against murder or against adultery or idolatry. Work and rest, labor and Sabbath stand with us as part of the fabric of creation. This was not something merely post-fall. This was not something that God plopped in in the giving of the law through Moses. No, no. It stands with us as part of the fabric of creation, and it is not something which we may jettison. We observe it, as one man said, to well display the image of God so that we may honor him in every age, close quote. So the Sabbath ordained in creation, that's the first thing. Secondly, the Sabbath frustrated by the fall. The Sabbath frustrated by the fall. Quite simply, the way God created things in the beginning is not the way things continue to be. How's that for stating something that's overly obvious? Adam sinned, and if you are a descendant of Adam, and we all are, if you are a human being, you are born in sin. As the old New England children's rhyme would put it, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Here, he was the father of the human race, our covenant representative, and like a representative in Congress casting a vote on behalf of his district, standing in for his people, so Adam represented the whole of the human race, and he sinned, dooming us all. Genesis three seventeen and following, God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Friends, until Christ returns to make all things new at last, our reality is Genesis 3.17. We know what it means to live life under the curse to labor the toil of our hands under the frustration, under the reality of the curse. Many folks don't particularly like their jobs. They simply endure them. And even for those of us who do enjoy our vocations, we know the reality of life in a fallen world. Come home at the end of the day with tired bodies, tired minds, stay-at-home mothers dealing with the unceasing demands of children all day long with nary a break, 
an employer with unrealistic expectations, an unreasonable and spiteful colleague, some folks barely making ends meet. Very often, our work is pressing through the thorns and thistles. We know that all too well. It's not the way things were meant to be. Something is very much wrong in our world. As I tell my children all the time, sin ruins everything. Sin ruins everything. It's not just that it puts you into a, into a sinful relationship, into a wrong standing before God your maker. Sin ruins everything. The very cosmos, the very soil of the ground, the air that we breathe, all of it tainted, polluted, marred, affected by sin. And so... This is why the fourth commandment of Exodus 20 is such a trumpet call and a fanfare of mercy. A world of sin-ruined, sin-poisoned labor. A world of disordered and warped and perverse desires of greed and sloth and laziness on the one hand and nonstop, over-demanding workaholism on the other. Into such a context, the fourth commandment comes, God comes And he speaks a word of divine mercy. The Sabbath day is a mercy, do you see? God knows his people. As the psalmist says, he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. God says, take one day in seven and stop. You need rest. There's more to life than work. There's more than mere toil and labor. You need respite. So put down the tools, get out of the office, close the textbooks, step away, give your mind, give your body some rest and your soul the refreshment that it so desperately needs. Think of the context, think of the immediate context of the Hebrews, the children of Israel. They're coming off of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, laboring, slaving, Working, toiling away, always at Pharaoh's behest, always at his beck and call. Do you think the Egyptian taskmasters let them keep the Jewish Sabbath? Remember Pharaoh, after Moses and Aaron first confronted him, remember his response? Don't provide them with any more straw. They're idle. Make them get their own straw, but I still expect the same brick quota to be met. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor and pay no regard to the lying words of Moses. When Deuteronomy rehearses the Ten Commandments, it makes this very point at Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. You shall remember, O Israel, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Four centuries of ceaseless, unrelenting enslavement. And what does God say? The day of rest. This day of rest, it's a piece. It's a picture. It's it's just a, a tiny sample, a smidgen, a hint of Eden's paradise. Of what that rest was like in unspoiled creation. That Sabbath day, take it. Keep it. Observe it. It's yours. I'm gifting it to you. You need it. Have it. And in our always-on, 24-7 digital age, with ceaseless noise and the unending beeping and buzzings of these relentless taskmasters that we keep in our back pockets, screens always demanding our attention, always demanding our fealty, 
What a mercy it is. What a mercy it is when we can have a day and say, no, not today. It's not necessary. Oftentimes you'll hear Christians say that we need to be countercultural in a, such a secular age that we live in. Christians need to be countercultural, and that's true in many ways. And I rather appreciate this quote from Dr. Carl Truman a few years back. He said, The most countercultural thing you can do these days is start observing the Lord's Day in a relatively traditional manner. You see, in, in a world where even our labor is frustrated by the effects of sin and the malice of our enemy, Satan, we need a Sabbath rest. It's a gift of grace. It's not a chore for you to tick off. It's a gift of grace. We need it. And to neglect it is to do damage to our bodies as well as our souls. So the Sabbath ordained in creation, the Sabbath frustrated by the fall, but then thirdly, the Sabbath redeemed and transformed in Christ. Sin ruins everything, but the resurrection changes everything. Sin ruins everything, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. As the fourth commandment reminded Israel of their enslavement in Egypt and their newfound liberty, how much more should this day remind us that we too were enslaved, but to something far worse than a foreign kingdom, fast bound in sin and nature's night, hell bound and doing it we were freely and doing it gladly, but we have been ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. In Christ, we have been given a greater redemption from a greater bondage. And so ultimately, brothers and sisters, the Sabbath day is a gospel day. As it's been said, it points us to the gospel. It points us to Christ. You'll say, well, many, many will note that the Old Testament Sabbath was on the last day of the week, on Saturday. But we observe it now on Sunday, on the first day of the week. And it properly has the name the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath. Well, how'd that happen? Well... Our Westminster Confession, chapter 20, puts it like this. God has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Close quote. You see, what the Westminster Confession is saying there simply underscores the enormous ramifications that the resurrection of Jesus Christ had on the rhythm of life itself. Everything, you see, everything that was a believer's delight and joy about an old covenant Sabbath Saturday now shifts, you see, because of what happened. Now shifts to a Sunday because of what happened over 2,000 years ago, early in the morning on that first day of the week. We see this in the early church. On the first day of the week, John 20, verse 19, the risen Christ stood among his disciples in the upper room. He came to them morning, and he came to them evening on the first day of the week, as Dr. Wilborn reminded us not too long ago as we were concluding the Gospel of John series. Christ continues by his word and spirit to meet with his people and to minister to them on his day, by the way, like this. What you're doing this very moment, right now, Christ continues to meet with his people and minister to us by his word and by his spirit on his day. 
Acts chapter 20, verses 5, 6, and 7. Paul and his missionary team, they delayed their departure so that they could meet with the church who would assemble to hear the word on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. The believers were instructed to set aside a portion of their income for the relief of the needs of the church on the first day of the week, the day that the church assembled. John, Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, he tells us that when he receives this grand and glorious vision, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, the first day of the week. It's a marvelous thing, just to make the theological connection and the theological point. It's a marvelous thing. Many others have said this as well, that at the dawn of time, on that first day of the creation week, God said, let there be light. And then in the fullness of time, Christ rises again on that first day of the week. And he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light in the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, verse 10. Light dawned on the first day of the week when God spoke it into existence in ancient days. And again, fast forward to the empty tomb as the light of the world is risen, inaugurating and beginning, ushering in the beginning of the age to come. Light and life to all he brings. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And because he has, isn't it wonderful? The Old Testament saints, they would labor for six days. They would labor for their Sunday through Friday and get to rest then on their Saturday, laboring for six, resting for one. Whereas, do you see, we, we begin. We begin with the Christian Sabbath on that first day of the week, on Sunday. And then we then launch forward into our labors and our vocations for the week ahead. There's a wonderful gospel pattern to this this new covenant reality. That the very way that it has structured the rhythm of our weeks, rest in Christ and then work. Resting in Him, safe in Him, secure in Him, communing with Him. And from that place of splendor, we launch into what the Lord has for us in the week to come. And of course, these earthly Lord's days point us forward to the fullness of that new age. The day is coming in the new heavens and the new earth, final rest, an eternity of unending Sabbath, joy, fullness, splendor, paradise restored, forever dwelling with the Lord our God. And we get a taste, just just a taste, just a sample of that just now. A sample of the life to come every Lord's Day, communing with the saints, communing with the Lord, being refreshed by His mercies. Just a taste of that life to come. We long for that final Sabbath. There yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Hebrews 4, verse 9. And so, as one man said, we continue to observe a Sabbath day as a way to say that this world is not our home and we are looking for a city that is to come whose builder and maker is God. We are longing for the day when our earthly Sabbaths will cease and give way to the unending Sabbath of heavenly rest in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Close quote. And so, friends, as we move toward a conclusion, the the question invariably arises, well, fine, but what am I allowed to do or not do? And there may be some wisdom in that. But given our time, perhaps a more useful approach is to get at a principle. Given the gift that God has given you, what is the best way to make use of the day? One of the key texts on the Sabbath is Isaiah 58, verse 13. 
God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, he says this, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, close quote. See, friends, here's where we need to do some soul searching. Do we consider the Sabbath a delight? Do we consider the Sabbath a delight? Do we approach it as a day to get the most out of God? A day of feasting, where we, where we slide up to the table and we, we grab the T-bone steak and we suck the juice and every last morsel right off the bone, getting maximum enjoyment out of the splendors before us. Or is the Lord's day to us a drudgery? Is it a drudgery or a delight? It is a day, is it a day where we are unable to do those things which I would honestly prefer to do? TV, shopping, housework, whatever. Or, or do we come at it with the attitude of, here's a day where I get to do what my soul loves most, what my soul needs most, what my soul perhaps isn't able to get to enjoy the rest of the week, given the frenetic, harried nature of my life. I need this. And God says, here's a day just for that. Soak it all in. You get all of me to yourself, along with all of God's people, for the whole of the day. Drink it all in. How many lonely Christians I've known. I was speaking to a few even just this week. How many lonely Christians I've known who long for the Lord's Day each week because it's the one day they get to be around fellow Christians who long or who love the things that they love and what a respite it is from the toxic and hostile and isolated environments that they are in those other six days of the week, whether with their families who hate Christ or their work environments who hate the things of God or university environments where things Make, to make God a mockery. They mock God all the time. What a respite, what an oasis this day is for so many of your brothers and sisters. If I can just get to Sunday, I heard one say. If I can just make it to Sunday. There are works of necessity and mercy. Our Westminster Confession is absolutely clear on that. Sometimes we are providentially hindered from coming to public worship due to illness or injury. We need medical professionals. We need hospitals police officers or firefighters when there are emergencies. Yes, of course, we need those things. There are lots of other legitimate examples. But these are qualifications or quibbles or exceptions that prove the general rule. For God's people, his day should be our delight. And so we need to ask, we need to ask, are these things that I'm currently engaged in really what I need to be doing today? Is that what this day is for? Can it not be done on Monday? Can it not be done on Saturday? Does this activity help facilitate my delighting in God? My keeping of his day? Of, or others facilitating their keeping of his day and their delighting of God? Is my activity facilitating others breaking of the fourth commandment? Or is my activity encouraging them in it? Remember how the commandment talks about manservants and maidservants and sojourners within their gates? There's a principle here. There's a principle here. Is what I'm doing a necessity, an absolute necessity? Is it a work of mercy 
Or is it something truly optional and elective? Am, am I causing others to break the Sabbath by participating in it? Am I passively facilitating the breaking of the Lord's day in some way? These are important habits for us to think about, or rather important things for us to think about, and perhaps maybe feel some conviction and change our habits, brothers and sisters. Imagine with me this. If my dear wife arranged a trip, it's our anniversary, and she's arranged a trip to Scotland, one of my favorite places in all the world, just the two of us. Childcare taken care of, all the hotels, all the dinner reservations, all the plane tickets, it's all set. She comes to me, she excitedly gives me the dates on the calendar, she's got the plane tickets in hand, joyfully eager to see my reaction, and I say, ah, you know, that's nice, but I really had my mind set on mowing the lawn that day. I really wanted to do some shopping that particular weekend. Would that be all right with you? I would immediately summon any such dunderheaded husband into my office for counseling, right immediately. But I hope you see the point. What a gift she's crafted for you. Don't be ridiculous. Surely you can tend to those things another day. Don't settle for the paltry when such a delight is set in front of you. That's what this day is for. Call the Sabbath a delight. Delight yourself in the Lord. A whole day when you don't have to worry about the lawn or household chores or running to yet another activity. God's given you a day. You're free. You've been given liberty. You are free not to have to worry about that on this day. That's what Monday through Saturday are for. So worship. Read that devotional book that you've been wanting to get to but never have time. Catch up on your Bible reading. Invite others over for fellowship. Practice Christian hospitality. Talk about the things of God. Sing psalms and hymns together. Enjoy a nap. If you're not already in the habit, by the way, friends, if you're not already in the habit of joining us for evening worship, may I warmly encourage you to begin doing so? Now, we understand that sometimes emergencies happen. We understand some of our older folks have difficulty driving at night. Some folks are caregivers for loved ones, and that is a work of necessity, absolutely. But for most of us, in general, it really is a joy to end the day together like that, to crown the Lord's day as God's people. What else? What else could be better? Now, you may have some questions on this, and that's fine. For some of you, this may be new territory. You didn't grow up hearing the classic Reformed teaching on the Fourth Commandment. Let me tell you, your elders would love to talk with you more about these things if you have some questions or reservations or uncertainties. But fundamentally, remember this. The Sabbath is designed for the delight and blessing of your soul. Take advantage of every means available. Exploit it for all it's worth. Get all out of it that you possibly can. Squeeze every last drop of grace and goodness for your soul out of this gospel day. Enjoy God. Give him the glory that he's due. Perhaps the Puritan George Swinnick best captured the spirit that we might have, our attitudes towards his day, God's day. Here's what Swinnick said. He wrote this, speaking of the Sabbath. Hail, thou that art highly favored of God, thou map of heaven, thou golden spot of the week, thou market day of souls, thou daybreak of eternal brightness, thou queen of days. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among days. All the graces triumph in thee. All the ordinances conspire to enrich thee. 
The Father ruleth thee. The Son rose upon thee. The Spirit hath overshadowed thee. On thee was light created. The Holy Ghost descended. Life hath been restored. Satan subdued. Sin mortified. Souls sanctified. The grave, death, and hell conquered. Hail thou day of days. Friends, brothers and sisters, let's call the Sabbath a delight. Praise God for his word toward us today and praise him for that fourth commandment. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do bless you for the fourth commandment, for the Lord's day, on this day which our Savior rose in victory, the day in which he promises to meet with his people. Lord, give us a hunger for more of Christ, that we would exploit his day, this gospel day, for the blessing and nourishment of our souls. Truly, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.